You're listening to Empath at Work. Come share this space with us as we explore how we harness empathy in life and at work. Welcome back to Empaths at Work. We are so excited for our guest today, Rob Volpe, who has a new book out, which we will absolutely be diving into during our conversation today, talking about what it means to be an empath advocate, empathetic advocate. Empathy activist. Oh my gosh. An empathy activist. (laughs) And all those other things too. An An empath advocate, all of it. Yes. All of the above. I love it. Wonderful. We will certainly be digging into that. But before we get there, we have to start off our episode with an moment. So Rob, thinking about being empathetic and, and practicing empathy, what would be an example or sometime in the last couple of weeks or recently where you displayed empathy in your life? Um, that's a good question. So have I displayed it? Okay, so I'll, I'll share this story. Um, on last week, so at our company, Ignite360, every other week now we have what we call coffee talk. And it's a 45 minute Friday morning, you know, because we're all virtual and we don't travel to, and see each other like we used to before the pandemic. So we started coffee talk as a way for us to get together and just talk about stuff. Um, and collect as a, as a group. And it's been really helpful and impactful um, as we've been processing all the crazy things that have gone on in the last two years. And we never talk about work. But the day before Coffee Talk last week, um, two of our team members, my colleagues, are based in Minneapolis, and they discovered that they um, were both in the same ice sort of show as kids. Um, no way. Yeah. And so, of course, they shared a photo of the two of them and their costumes and their big smiles. And, and then everybody was like, oh, who's who? And trying to identify and guess. And, and we were like, okay, that'll be revealed at Coffee Talk. <laughs> And so we got on to Coffee Talk and we were talking, you know, they were sharing their memories of ice skating as kids. And um, Tori, one of my colleagues, she became a competitive, uh, she was a competitive ice skater and really good. And she coaches it now. And Sarah was doing it more for fun. And she just enjoyed the, you know, the activity and, and being together with friends. But it brought up for me my own, like, traumatizing moments playing soccer in fifth grade and being on the bench the whole time and how awful that was and then like bowling league before that came up and and I commented on how like blah dra- the dregs and the awfulness of it but then one of my other colleagues or COO she was like oh I didn't have that type of bad experience she's like I was in gymnastics and I absolutely loved it And we got to talking and other people were chiming in about things that they liked. And Sarah had reiterated that she really enjoyed the ice skating. And so the empathy for me was realizing like, oh, not everybody had the same experience that I did growing Mm. up. We all had different experiences. And so therefore, they're not carrying the negative feelings, Mm. um, negative perceptions of organized childhood activities that I do. And, and I need to be mindful of that and approach, don't, like I jumped into the conversation just assuming that everybody had had a bad experience, but mm-hmm. that actually wasn't the case. And so the lesson for me was don't make those assumptions and don't be judgmental mm-hmm. about it. 
so yeah, that that that's one that immediately pops to mind for me. That's such a good one. And also a good tip to be able to get your team together and just talk with um, coffee talk. But I'm also going to relate to you because I was in a bowling league for a very short period of time and I did not enjoy it. So our experiences, pro- we could, the we could commiserate. Like the shoes that other people have been wearing, like no fun. No Maybe fun. we just chose the wrong sports. <laughs> could be, could be. So the theme of today's episode is to talk um, about the decline of empathy and the the desire for more. And I kind of feel like this is a planet money episode. If we're thinking about supply (laughs) and demand, you would think, hey, this is a good thing. There's a high demand for empathy, but there's low supply. Um, And one of the reasons that we're talking about this theme is based on some research, Rob, you had brought up to me about how you have seen the decline in empathy over time. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Sure, sure. So um, the, the, the kind of thing that really got me going as an adult around empathy and the need to become an empathy activist was when we saw in um, uh, 2010, a study came out of University of Michigan, and they'd done this meta-analysis, a study of studies, 76 universities from 1979 to 2009, and they were looking at campus life uh, surveys. And when they looked at the question of, can you see the point of view of your classmates, they found that starting in 2001, there was 40% less empathy in 2001 than there was when they started looking at it in 1979. There was this steady decline. Yeah, 40%, exactly. And it stayed for the last eight years. It never ticked back up. It just like bottomed out. And that to me, and and that's now 20 years ago when that nadir was, was achieved. And so like, okay, that means that if I was in college in 2001, I'd be like 40 right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm a parent and I'm at work and I'm a manager mm-hmm. and I'm a leader and I'm a, I should be contributing, but I don't have the empathy skills. Mm-hmm. And that was really, that, that was very bothersome to me. Um, and so as we started doing our work at Ignite360, one of the things we uh, continued to look at was how people engaged and, and what it took for them to become empathetic. And most mm-hmm. recently in January, we put a survey out of a thousand U.S. adults and we asked, and I mean, I don't know if I mentioned it, this, yeah. but like, we asked, <laughs> like a bad research question. We just said, can you easily see the point of view of others? And, you know, that's one of those questions that's like, hmm, the answer is probably yes, I agree with it. And yet 30% or 31%, almost a third of American adults were unable to agree with that statement. Wow. So one third of the adults you run into on any given day are unable to easily have empathy or see the point of view of somebody else. And that's really concerning. And that's like January, that's like two months ago, three months right. ago. Um, so that's all really fresh and recent. And I know Cheyenne, you're going, yeah, but I live in Singapore now. And let me tell you. <laughs> Where we have no empathy at all. Well, <laughs> there was a study that was done back in 2016. They looked at empathy around the world and the most empathetic countries and i don't know where singapore showed up but the united states ranked seventh out of 63 countries um canada was 12th 
Australia was 45th and the UK was 47th. Well, who is number one? Yeah. (laughs) Take a guess. Who would you guess? Like the Netherlands, like yeah, Denmark. yeah. That's why I said Ecuador. Ecuador. Ecuador was the most empathetic country. Yes. Um, wow. So what's really interesting, and and what's kind of top of mind for me, we had a conversation last week, um, or that was just aired this week uh, about difficult conversations and how often people who have empathy had to anticipate or communicate without words from a young age. So thinking mm-hmm. about family systems, thinking about empathy being something like you need to anticipate what someone else is feeling or experiencing so you feel safe and secure. And I I wonder thinking about kind of the different cultural aspects of it with Ecuador being at the top if the family dynamic has something to do with how people look at the world. I yeah, I, I think there might be something to that because if I recall correctly, and the study was done by um, there was a it was published in a journal of cross cultural psychology, Chopik C H O P I K was the um, author, but I believe there were like more Latin cultures that were in the top sort of ten, mm-hmm. and I think some of that is yeah culturally how are you engaging. Um, and that some of the the rituals and, and behaviors in the home. So, yes, I think very, very observational. But then, like, why are Australia and the UK so yeah. far down? Um, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Even with the the first data point of um, the empathy dropping in two thousand one, what like what are the things that you think are driving that? Oh, um, we find a family dynamic. Maybe it's new parenting books that came out. Actually, so I, I describe it as the unintended cons. Well, the unintended consequences of my cat starting to wrestle fight. (laughs) Um, guys, come on. You'll have to send us a picture so we can put them on the magic ingredients blog. I will. (laughs) (laughs) Like right now while they're tumbling all over. Um, so yeah, so I think of it as like the unintended consequences of good intentions. Mm. So if you think about what was happening, like, yeah, 2001, there was 9-11. And I think if it had been that, you would have seen a blip. It would have like right. recovered over time. But I look, I think more broadly, like what was going on in society at the time? And I, and you have to go back into the 90s, I think even, to think about, okay, what what was actually happening? And we had a lot of increase in technology and that had been going on mm-hmm. since the seventies and eighties, but technology in the way of, you know, like a, the thing about video games, when you're playing a video game, you're sitting <clears throat> back then you would have been sitting side by side on a sofa with somebody, but right. your connection was with a screen that was ahead mm-hmm. of you. And even today you're playing, a, a, you know, you're online playing a game and you can be playing with your buddy but you're removed from each other. Like how much are you really interacting and building empathy with each other? You're still trying to score yeah. um, and, and get your own points. So there's there's a lot of technology advances that have happened that have, have hindered that. And then I look at the way kids were being raised and I'm, I'm in my early fifties. So I'm a child of the like late seventies and eighties. And we were like those latchkey kids that like, mm-hmm. you know, 
when my parents were both working, we'd come home with a key, get <laughs> in the house, and you know, it just it was expected that we would behave. Mm-hmm. And we would take care of ourselves until mom came home and then dinner and all of those things happened. But then as it got into the, the 90s, there was pressure that started to get applied to parents to, for their kids to um, get, a, get, a, get ahead, build the resume, you know, get into a better college. And so kids started to get scheduled into all of these different activities to be well-rounded. Um, and other families were also using it as childcare. So you didn't, because they didn't mm-hmm. like the idea of the latchkey kid. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of stigma in the media, as I recall about it. So it was like, all right, here we can have the kids doing all these different things and they can become the, um, you know, they'll, they'll be well-rounded and we'll have childcare until we get home. And so, boom, the unintended consequence of that is the kids don't have time to be bored anymore mm. because they're so busy. They're constantly doing things. And when you're bored, you know, what would happen? Mom would say, go to your room and play or yeah, it's not right now. sorry it's okay yeah (laughs) very local lots to say today barnabas this is his like (laughs) (laughs) this is his echolocating thing i call it he's looking for one of his siblings okay so we were talking about um, when kids are bored, they, you know, mom would send you to your room to play or send you outside. Yeah. And what are the things that you would do? They tended to be creative play or mm-hmm. imaginative play. You know, you might role play, you might play with dolls or action figures. You're, you're expanding your imagination. You might, you know, set up, you know, play restaurant or something. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are expanding your empathy skills and they're strengthening your empathy muscle. So the unintended consequence of having the kids so busy in all these really great activities is that they weren't having the opportunity to be bored. And then today, kids are handed devices when they're mm-hmm. bored. And you know, Minecraft is lovely and you can do <laughs> some fun things with Roblox, but it's not really building empathy. You're yeah. not using your you're not using your imagination in the same way. You're not imagining what it would be like to be somebody else. You know, yeah. like if you're doing Roblox, you're not actually pretending to be the host or the chef at the pretend restaurant that you've created, serving whether it's your dolls, your pets, your parents, whomever's around, whatever concoction you've made. So it's that lack of, of that imaginative play that, again, and it's like death by a thousand cuts and all these unintended consequences, all these little things that are like chipping away at it. And then you get into, you know, there's globalization has happened. The world has changed in the way that we're connected to one another. And then social media um, and the Internet have changed the ways that we can show up and find our um our, our tribe or our bubble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you guys are an example of that. You're Boston, Nashville, Singapore. Yeah. <laughs> 30 years ago, I mean, you guys might have been pen pals um, and, <laughs> yeah. and maybe sent an email to each other occasionally, but you wouldn't have been able to have gotten together like this. And, yeah. and so what's happened is the idea of us being a tribe or the, you know, all living in the same cave 
the definition, the boundaries have changed and it can go along and the algorithms are kind of programmed to put them along ideological lines. Mm -hmm. And so you're stretched and, and that's where people can go down into the rabbit hole and they just hear the same things over and over again with mm -hmm. no exposure to alternate viewpoints. And I know I've experienced it myself, um, you know, in following politics and things like you just keep getting bombarded with more of the same things because they want you to engage in things that you like, mm -hmm. and, you know, all the unintended consequences of good intentions of, Hey, let's give people more of what they like. Well, yeah. the problem with that is they're not actually being challenged by alternate viewpoints, which they might've had if they were just talking to their neighbor over the fence, you know, which is what used to happen or the neighbor down the hall in your apartment building. Um, so yeah, all of those things are leading into this, um, I think this 40% decline in empathy and it is part of why it hasn't reversed itself. Um, and it's only been now, I mean, there's been a cry for more empathy in, for years. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that we found that was missing, I kept looking at these, you know, at, at blog posts and articles and newspapers and big major newspapers. And like, yeah, you need to be more empathetic. You need to watch the news programs they're watching, go to the restaurants they're going to listen to the music. And it's like, okay, great. But if I'm going in with my judgment on, I'm never going to be able to actually get to a place of empathy. And that's mm -hmm. where I was like, someone needs to teach people and explain how, because yeah. if it is a skill, if it's a muscle, it's kind of like, okay, lift your arm. Well, I, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But there was a lot of different action that happened in lifting my arm beyond me just thinking it. So what is that for empathy? And that's where we started to look at and break down, like, what, what is it that, that gets in our way? What are the things we have to do as researchers? You would do right. a lot of qualitative research. What were we able to see our clients struggling with? That was kind of the beauty of our work. Clients were coming into, you know, the field with us on ethnographic work and, mm you'd hear a lot of judgment from them or you'd see what would happen if we didn't ask a good question or if we just weren't present. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to, to identify what those five steps were and started to test that out and, and um, coach it to our clients. And it, all of a sudden it was making a difference. Um, yeah, it sounds, I wanna get into the five steps in a minute, but I wanna also unpack so much that you just kind of shared with us in terms of the different factors that are have been driving to the decline of empathy because like technology in itself is so interesting because it can what you had mentioned right it can dehumanize the experience and separate us from uh, other humans so then we don't feel like we're you know uh, you know, you always get on the message boards. That's probably old speak, but <laughs> um, where people are bullying because they don't understand, right, that they may be talking to another person, but then it also sometimes works in the other way, right, where you can connect with people where you may not fit in at school, but you have this community online. So it's really interesting to to look at these different areas. And like right now you hear so many companies talking about personalization, but then right there's the the downside of or some of the harmful effects of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's only so much um there's there's like a negative 
you know, we get a new tool, a new, it's like driving, I guess. So yeah. you learn how to drive, you speed, you like, you know, woo, I'm texting with one hand and I'm driving with one hand. <laughs> um, and then, but then you learn over time mm. and you learn through your mistakes and the accidents and then you become a better driver. And I think mm. we're going through a similar inflection point with social media for sure. Yeah so much awareness is coming, at least I hope it continues, but there's so much attention on the negatives of social media right now and the lack of regulation and, and things that if that continues to change, it'll change how we're engaging. Um, mm -hmm. And we're even seeing that, you know, the things that people are posting are changing. There's not as much FOMO um, that had been happening. There's much more kind of, this is me. I'm real. I got cats like doing whatever yeah. I'm doing and this is my life. Right. Uh, I don't really, you know, I'm not going to curate it to perfection um, the way that, that, that I used to. And it's not to say that it's not out there. It still is. Right. But you're not seeing it quite as much. And even like last summer when um, in between pandemic surges and everybody was out traveling, I don't know, like how many photo dumps did you see of, you know, on Instagram where people were just like, here's 10 photos from my trip. And, mm -hmm. you know, none of them were perfectly curated and that, yeah. and that selfie that you used to see or like, it, so I think that the, 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 the uh, discourse is changing yeah. and evolving. And I think in a good way that will hopefully get us to a place of, just connecting and being more human again. Yeah. We used to call it um, like being unfiltered, right? Especially such a play on with Instagram. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. And, and you know, and I think that's a, a positive uh, outcome from the pandemic is just yeah. the opportunity to be unfiltered. Yeah. Um, and the board, what you mentioned around kind of being bored too, right? I think maybe the pandemic had given a lot of people opportunities to, to find some boredom. To be super bored. Uh, <laughs> to be so bored, they made uh, sourdough starters. I mean, yeah. I don't know how much more bored you can get. Yeah, that they were baking bread every. <laughs> um, we've been doing a study called Navigating to a New Normal and mm -hmm. tracking. We've done quant, but we've been tracking qualitatively the same 16 American adults since April of 2020. So we've Around oh, interesting years. And that's why I was just talking to one of the participants now. And, and it's fascinating because like, I've been talking to her for two years. Like I know her really well. Wow. Yeah. I remember things from what her life, she said her life was like before and after. And we were reflecting on the things that have changed and stayed the same during the pandemic. And she, you know, a, in the early days of the pandemic, similar to the sourdough starter, she had this very elaborate smoothie ritual. Ooh. Smoothie every day, had all the powders and had all these like containers that she had bought for it. And it would take her like an hour to pull it all together and drink Whoa. it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And, yes. um, that was before the pandemic? That was during. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, that was her equivalent of sourdough bread, but she was okay. doing it every day. Gotcha. Wow. And sometime in the last six months or so, she's realized, like, that takes a lot of time. And as things start to get busy again, I can't keep yeah. going. But now she's doing it about twice a week. 
So, and then she goes out and does, gets things from other places. So, but that's a shift. Like she mm -hmm. was making a smoothie at home before, but the pandemic has now, you know, given her confidence in the skills of what she can do. And, and, you know, she's, she's really growing and evolving as a person. And it's been really amazing to watch that. She was, she lives in New York city. She's in a small alcove apartment that she's owned for, you know, 14, 15 years. And she decided to renovate her bathroom and, and she going through all the things and had contractors coming in, but it was getting really expensive. So she decided to do the painting herself. And she is not the type of woman to <laughs> paint a, a bathroom, but she went on YouTube, saw the like videos on how to do it. And then she discovered as she started to do it, that she's really liking it. She's enjoying it. Um, and then she actually started doing some drywall. Um, oh, wow. Yes. Good for her. Sounds yeah. like you, Katie. Yeah. I and, love that. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's just, I was, I was marveling as I was, as we were talking today about how much she's evolved and how much she's mm. changing as a person. And then obviously the gift that I have of, of getting to observe that. Mm. Um, but you're seeing how the pandemic has impacted an individual and affected who they are now. Mm -hmm. She wasn't, you know, she would never have done drywall two years ago. She was too busy going out and, you know, yeah. dinners and drinks out on the town and enjoying New York in that way. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing what the pandemic has done for so many people. Um, yeah. It, what's so interesting kind of as we're talking, I'm, I'm hearing how you're seeing this world evolving and people in it evolving and kind of before the pandemic, I think we were really headed down this path of like these silos where technology is helping us really break our, our, I guess, civilization, humanity as a whole into these different silos. And now we're kind of finding our way back together in different aspects and really back to who we are and what our, our personal goals are and like the awakening of life. Um, and I'm just curious with that shift over the last two years, what do you think empathy of the future looks like now that we've got technology, now that we have these silos that are starting to morph into maybe tribes? Like what, what is this next chapter of empathy? Good question. Um, I think that we, you know, what's actually happened, we've seen, um, you know, with the great resignation, we've seen so many people leaving their jobs and, and some have left the workforce, but a lot of people have gone to other jobs. And one of the real reasons why they've done that is because they didn't feel supported at work, mm -hmm. didn't feel that their boss had empathy with them or the organization didn't have empathy with them as, as you know, in the case of white collar workers, you were having to juggle being at home and kids doing cartwheels behind you because there was no schooling. Or if you were in the service industry or blue collar, like, how are you being kept safe? How are you, mm -hmm. what were the expectations that were being placed on you? You were putting yourself in harm's way. And people have kind of said no, uh, like enough. And they found other opportunities and they're taking advantage of that. And they're also finding, you know, uh, in the service industry and other places, like, oh, wait a minute, I can get a better paying job. It's not, mm. it's a very much take this job and shove it type of, of feel where <laughs> now, I mean, Target is paying in some cities like $20, $23 an hour. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's serious like money that you're getting for to work at, at at target and and so even you know the politicians have been pushing some politicians and progressives have been pushing to increase the minimum wage mm -hmm. and in some ways it's happening um but driven by the the workers and they're mm -hmm. like, i'm not going to do this and and then people are leaving and so what 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 I've heard in the study and you see and read articles in the media, somebody that was working um, kind of a traditional blue collar job or working in the restaurant hospitality industry, you weren't making that much money. And so when you started to look at, hmm, how much am I paying for childcare, which went through the roof, if you can mm -hmm. even get it during the pandemic. So childcare became really difficult to get. And like, how much money am I really making versus like, what am I taking home at the end of the mm -hmm. day? This isn't worth it. Like we can just all stay home. And for a lot of parents, like they're finding that to be more rewarding anyway, raising yeah. their kids and then let the other spouse work and mm -hmm. they'll figure it yeah. out. And yeah, you know, we have one respondent, she's in that similar situation where she's like, yeah, I'm not going to go back to work because we're not, I wasn't making that much more money off of the childcare and all mm. of that. And I can now be home with my kids and yeah, we're going to have to cut back on a couple of things, but at the end of the day, it's, it's worth it. So yeah, seeing all of that happen. And so what does modern empathy look like in the workplace? Well, all of a sudden leaders are having to have empathy. Yeah. And, and display it. And yeah. Display it. Yes, exactly. And so Coffee talk um, is one step, right? Coffee talk <laughs> is one way to do it. Um, and it's it and it's related to everything. I mean, it's related mm -hmm. to the issues around diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm -hmm. It plays a critical role in making your organization inclusive and, and the belonging elements of it. Um, and it also then just every interpersonal relationship, the manager to the employee, cross-functional teams working and collaborating together. You know, if you think about empathy as the, um, um, today's analogy is the oil in the catalytic converter engine and the piston <laughs> and everything. Empathy is that oil. It's the lubricant mm. gets everything running smoothly, or it's the glucosamine in your joints. Mm. And if you can reach a place of empathy, you are able to communicate better. You're able to collaborate. You're able to conduct critical thinking more effectively, make better decisions. You can um, ideate. You can persuade. You can trust somebody. You can forgive and you can have compassion. Mm. And all of those are skills. Wow. And you use those skills and they'll make you a better team member, manager, leader, independent contributor, a person, spouse, partner, parent, like all of the friend, all the things in your life. And empathy is one of the critical ingredients to making all of those skills possible, which then makes you that better person. And so leaders need to, organizations need to get on the, the empathy bandwagon, like ASAP. And they got to walk the talk to your point. Mm -hmm. Jan, they have got to demonstrate it. And it's not just about, you know, the manager, it's about your sales organization. It's about the way your, your teams are interacting and working with each other. One of the other factors I think that goes into um, the decline in empathy that I didn't bring up is looking at the media and mm. the, um, um, 
you know, reality TV, which got started in the late nineties, early two thousands, we ended up, um, uh, you know, in this sort of zero sum game reality show competition, you know, it's all about mm -hmm. who can be nastiest to who. And, you know, for 20 years we've had that. And now you have more positive reality shows that are doing really well. RuPaul's Drag Race is a great example of that. The Great British Baking Show. Mm -hmm. Another one where there's just compassion and empathy amongst the contestants and the way that they're generally on RuPaul's Drag Race, they can go at it. <laughs> <laughs> there is a message overall of sisterhood and support. Yeah connection and so you know that's another space where we're starting to see some some change there and then of course you look at cable news and they're all like fighting with each other uh, yeah um, so organizations need to be more empathetic they need to be showing up for their employees they need to be admitting and saying like i see you i understand what's going on and here's what we're doing to help support you and by doing that um it improves loyalty improves mm -hmm. their ability to balance work-life uh, situations. It improves their ability to be uh, innovative, um, engaged in the workplace. Like there's all sorts of data that's come out in the last year about why empathy is so critical. So if like our listeners, our leaders, rewind. <laughs> and if you're send this year leader, it's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's true. And it's not, it's not easy, but it's, you know, it, and it takes practice, but you yeah. have to make the commitment to doing it. Um, and you can see results really quickly. It's not, yeah. like, it's not that insurmountable. So Rob, now we are dying to hear some practical tips and steps to be more empathetic. Awesome. Yes. So five steps. It's very simple. You, it's not easy. Got to pay attention and have awareness. It's really a, an exercise in self-awareness. The very first step and the thing for most people in corporate America, people that are more highly educated, the thing that gets in their way is step one, which is dismantling judgment. Mm. And that comes from all of your biases, your stereotypes, your past experiences, the ways that you've been trained to like, oh, I've got to make a decision. I've got to be do, 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 do. Um, that leads to judgment. And, and it's about being judgmental. It's not about making a judgment. You still have to make the business decisions. But if you're casting aspersion on someone, that's what you want to, to set aside. You don't want to be putting somebody down in thought or in action, you know, or word. Um, you want to dismantle that. And judgment, if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to get to the other steps because you're just going to be surrounded by your judgment. Mm -hmm. The second step is asking good questions. This is about exploratory open questions. If you're, you, there's open and then there's closed questions. Closed questions are like, yes, no, maybe one word answers. You do need those from time to time in a research survey in particular. But when you're talking to somebody, when you're, you're interacting with a human being, you want to ask them a good open question that's exploratory that's not going to lead them somewhere and and like i always think about in courtroom dramas when they talk about leading the witness they go object mm -hmm. the witness because they've asked a question in a way that's just getting the witness to affirm the bias or say whatever the, mm -hmm. the lawyer wants mm -hmm. them to say 
Um, instead, you want to ask a very open question. Um, I also challenge people in the book not to use the word why when they're asking mm. questions. I know, right? Why, yeah. is, why is a word that we have a lot of defensive baggage uh, around? Mm. Because if you think about it, from the time you were like three, mm -hmm. yeah. Mom, dad, <laughs> yeah, mom, dad, teacher, boss, <laughs> saying why? I mean, why'd you draw on the wall? Why'd you cut your sister's hair? Why'd you, you know, do all the things that we've done? Right. Why is the report late? Why are you late for work? Why this? Why that? Why? 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 And you end up, you get really defensive. And so when someone asks you, I I notice it. If somebody comes to me with why, why did you do this? I get like, and I get defensive right. and I'm not going to necessarily, I'm, I'm, my brain starts to go to defending myself mm -hmm. versus explaining and introducing mm -hmm. like, well, here's how I'm thinking about this. So one challenge uh, for your listeners, it would be take the word why out of your vocabulary for a day. Just try it. Mm, love that. Catch yourself and see if you can use, reframe the question with what, with who, where, how, when, restate the question, and you're going to yeah. find, you're going to get very different answers. Um, another one too is like, you know, it's not just about the first question that you ask, it's about the follow-up. And so mm. the title of the book, Tell Me More About That, is a perfect follow-up question. Yeah. Because the way you, where you take that and how you, you go is totally up to you. Um, one woman reached out to me recently, somebody I didn't know, she'd read the book and she has a 13 year old and she, her son was having difficulty with school with, a, I think, English or something. And she said, typically she would have you know, challenged him and gone, well, why, why were you, you know, why did you have trouble with that class? What's going on? And instead, she thought about the title of the book and thought about the stories that she had read. And she said, tell me more about what's going on in, in class. And mm -hmm. she said her son opened up to her in a way that he never had. And they mm -hmm. had a much deeper conversation about what was troubling him and where he was running into difficulty. So she was able to help him mm -hmm. in a way that she hadn't before. And, and that, so yeah, it's about the way you're asking questions you're going to get a lot richer, deeper information back. Right. Because that goes back to your first point with dismantling judgment. And some questions might come with judgment, right? Absolutely. Like, why aren't, like, why aren't you getting straight A's? You're, yeah, you're making assumptions and then yeah. it's coming out in the tone or the phrasing of the question. Or you're just like not even going to ask them a question because you've just got so mm -hmm. much, you've dismissed them. And then you get into the third step, which is active listening. Mm. And this is about being present. Um, it's about the words that you hear, but it's also about what you're seeing, what you're sensing, your intuition, the things that you're picking up. Um, so you're using all of those things in combination. So it's like the nonverbal cues, you know, with their arms crossed. That's kind of the, the stereotypical defensive position that somebody might take. So you're looking for those things. You're looking for, you know, the interesting things that might be on the background, you know? So it's like, Amanda, tell me about that. Is that Vancouver map behind you or something mm -hmm. else? Or, you know, I hear a dog barking. Whose dog is that? You heard my cats. Yeah. And we end up having great conversations and we connect mm -hmm. a lot better over that. 
because we're hearing what's going on in each other's lives. And that's the thing about what you would be doing at work is paying mm -hmm. attention to the other details in somebody's life, the things that you're noticing and asking about it. So you're listening by paying attention and then you're able to ask and then they're gonna tell you and you're gonna be able to get to a place of empathy. So then the fourth step is integrate into understanding. So I'll ask all three of you a question. Um, integrate into understanding. Integrate into understanding. Okay. So for each one of you, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Vanilla. Like a peanut butter Reese's cup and chocolate ice cream. Okay. Coffee Oreo, but I Ooh. don't have any bias. Coffee Oreo sounds amazing. You guys have good. amazing flavors there. So it's delightful. Integrate into understanding. And Cheyenne, I'm going to pick on you for a moment because you said vanilla, yes. which is a beautiful flavor. But for somebody like Caitlin who likes chocolate, peanut butter, Reese, like there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Caitlin can appreciate the beauty of vanilla ice cream. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no bias. No bias. But not everybody can. And integrating into understanding is making room in your head that, hey, I may like vanilla, but mm. somebody else likes, you know, um, uh, chocolate peanut butter cup ice cream, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's okay. And you want to yeah. be curious about that and explore that. But so, um, yeah, it's about making sense that yes, somebody else has a different point of view and that's okay. Yeah. And you allow that to happen and have room in your head for it so that, you know, it's, it's accepting their point of view, whatever it is that they're telling them. It's just and like your example from the ale moment with the, yeah. um, um, organized sports. And that was the thing I had judgment Initially, mm -hmm. and then it was to, I had to integrate that into my understanding. Once I got over the judgment, yeah. I went, okay, other people had something different. Like drop my drop my baggage, drop my stuff. Then it was like, hmm, okay, people liked soccer, you know, <laughs> bowling. <laughs> that, you know, okay, no judgment, just accept that, and, and and be okay with like I didn't, but they did, and that's mm -hmm. okay. That's okay. We're all different. We all have different perspectives and opinions and beliefs, and that's great. And then there's this fifth step, which is using the solution imagination. So that's when you're able to actually step into their shoes and imagine what it would be like to enjoy bowling or mm -hmm. or to have had a really positive, like what would it have been like to have had a really positive experience with childhood sports? That's, you know, and, and as you're listening to somebody, you're responding to that. And then you can ask them more questions mm -hmm. rather than having more judgment and, you know, having to deal with, with whatever that would be. Mm -hmm. So it's using solution imagination at the end is putting yourself into their shoes. It is actually getting to a place of empathy. I love how that ties back to, you know, what you said, Rob, about allowing kids to be bored so that mm. they can practice, you know, being imaginative. And I, as you said that, I was also wondering, it has it also got anything to do with the death of reading? And I feel like every introduction that I do at the moment at work, uh, one of the favorite group activities seems to be, um, you know, 
talk about a book that you read recently. And funnily enough, everybody's reading nonfiction at the moment. And I never read nonfiction. I only read fiction because I just feel like it, you know, you're the author has to really make it real for you. Like you are a character in the book or multiple characters in the book. Yeah. And I feel like I love that because, you know, you, you really get to take yourself out of yourself. Like you stop thinking about yourself and put yourself into another character. Um, and I wonder if that's got anything to do with it as well. Cause I realize these days that many yeah. kids don't read anymore. They don't read nearly as much or they're reading very short or, you know, and I grew up reading comic books. So I'm not going to, you know, not because <laughs> you do it's, it's, yeah. and you're putting yourself into Wonder Woman's shoes or Spider-Man or whomever. Um, and, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, reading is such a wonderful tool to expand your mind and put yourself into the character, into the shoes of somebody else. And I know people and, and Cheyenne, I agree with you about fiction. I, I mean, my book's nonfiction, so I hope people are, are getting there too, but. I will actually read it. But good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> a good memoir, like there, there are you know, good memoir mm -hmm there are good nonfiction books that really do transport you or make you have to take on the point of view of somebody else. Um, right. But they tell a story because they're telling a story. Exactly. But I think generally, you know, yeah, fiction is the thing for people to be looking at and to try to connect and understand. Yeah. And it's a great way to strengthen the muscles. Interestingly, I don't know that TV and movies, I'd be happy to debate this with somebody. I don't think <laughs> TV watching and movies does that as well. I think it still mm. does, but it, it can be very passive. Mm -hmm. You know, the, I think the act of reading and taking it in and, and there's interpretation mm -hmm. in the reading helps really expand, expand the mind and then expand the empathy muscle. Yeah. Well, Rob, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And um, I keep, feel like I keep using the word enlightening on all of our podcasts, but I just keep learning so much. Um, so we really appreciate having you on the podcast and learning more about you and these um, five steps to practicing empathy. I've written them down and will be practicing them myself. So to wrap us up, can you tell us where people can find you and your new book? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. It's available wherever you buy books. Um, so on in hardcover and in ebook, there's an audio book that'll be coming in May. Um, and it's available, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, uh, IndieBound, um, and then around the world as well. It's, it's got awesome. good distribution. I know oh. somebody in Singapore, a distributor in Singapore <laughs> bought 35 copies. So it, it's in Singapore, wow. in hard and hard, hardcover. You have to um, find them, Cheyenne. I know. I'm going to track that down. Um, and then, um, so to find me, learn more about me, you can visit five steps to empathy.com and it's the number five steps to empathy.com. Um, and there's a website there, more information about the book. There's a bonus chapter actually on that website. So you can get a free download of the book. There's also reading guides. So if you are in a corporate 
uh, work reading group or even a personal book club. There's two different reading guides that we created to help foster conversation if you want to read the book. Oh, I love read. that. Um, yeah, a couple of companies have already started doing that, which is great. Um, yeah, and then other things around my speaking engagements and other thought pieces that I've written. Uh, and then you can find me on social media. Um, empathy act empathy underscore activist is my Instagram um, uh, account. Um, and also on LinkedIn, Rob Volpe. If you just search Rob Volpe, V-O-L-P-E, empathy activist, you'll find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. Oh, TikTok. Whoa. Check that out. <laughs> empathy dance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> love it. yeah so i hope people do reach out and find me i would love to continue the conversation yeah and we will post all the details too on our blog on our website and pass at work underneath the magic ingredients tab so thank you so much rob it was so great meeting you and your cats and um hope you have a good rest of your week awesome thank you uh amanda caitlin and cheyenne i appreciate it great being here Thank you for listening to EW, also known as Empaths at Work. We want you to engage in the conversation. Leave us a voice message by clicking on the link in the episode description. Now for the fine print. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are our personal opinions and don't necessarily reflect the views of any companies we are associated with as working women. That's all. That's all.